And praise the Lord, everybody. Are you glad to be in God's service tonight? Amen. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord, and it's incredible to be with God's people. I think there may have been a time that it was a cliche for us to say it feels good to be in the house of the Lord. I don't feel that way anymore. It's not just something good to say. It's something good to be. I'm glad to be here tonight. Amen. And uh, looking forward to what God is going to do in this place tonight. I'm going to uh, have you be seated this evening. We are going to draw our text tonight from the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. Uh, Our verse this week is found in Joel chapter 1 and verse number 15. Joel chapter 1 and verse 15. And we will read this together tonight and then I'm going to begin in the, the beginning of the text and just spend some time with you here. I had a long conversation today on the phone with a pastor friend from another country and we were discussing uh, some of the diversities, I guess you would say, in perspectives of eschatology and end time understanding. And uh, I think that we have, uh, we have come to a place in the end time, if, if ever, that, that you and I, as the body of Christ, speak the same thing. Um, Paul told the church at Corinth that we must speak the same thing, that we must be of the same mind and the same judgment. I think it's easy for us to miss that, but of all things, especially when it comes to end time, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Revived Holy Roman Empire, uh, Roman Antichrist versus Islamic Antichrist. All that's going to come to play. I'm talking about the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. We better all get on the same page. I, I, don't, I don't know how to uh, say this tonight without sounding, uh, without sounding super strong. If you know me at all. You know, I am not dictatorial. I do not lead with an iron fist. As a matter of fact, I lead with a very fleshy heart um, that is easily uh, handed to people and sometimes probably broken. But I want to tell you something, church. You just listen to your pastor when I tell you. The danger in some of modern end time teaching and preaching is that it disengages the mind and the heart of the believer to believe that Jesus could come at any moment. If we start moving timelines and we start moving ideas to where we've got to see this and this and this and this and this happen in the earth before the Lord comes back, then we're not living like he could come at any moment. Now, I know that he could come for me tonight before I go to bed. He could come get me. And he could come get you. But I'm not talking about him coming to get me. I'm talking about him coming to get us. I believe in the imminent return of Christ. I believe that we as the body of Christ, once we have been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, had better be prayed up, fasted, seeking the word of God, and ready to go at any minute. To me, if you're not living with your, your eye on the eastern sky, you're living dangerous. Hello. I was raised to believe that he could come at any moment. And I'm going to die if... If he doesn't come back before my death, I'm going to die believing 
that I barely missed it. That he could have been here just any moment. We have got to get back to teaching, preaching, and believing that the coming of Christ is imminent. His return is imminent. The rapture is upon us. Well, Pastor, what have you done come for another hundred years? That's not a lot of time. That's not, a, that's not a lot of time. There are people in this room tonight that are just a few years shy of seeing that hundred year mark. So you're talking about a lifetime. Just one lifetime away from the coming of the Lord. And what I'm about to tell you tonight, I mean with all sincerity from my heart, but that's exactly why it's dangerous for our churches to be more about our personal health, our fellowship, teaching on community, and oh, how wonderful it is for us to come together and have a cup of coffee and eat cereal together. It's dangerous for us to turn soul-saving stations into a relaxed environment where we come together to be entertained and to enjoy our experience together. That's a new language. We're coming for a worship experience. I don't know what kind of experience it is. I'm coming to be sure that I'm in alignment with the book, that my heart is ready. It'd be all right with me if that trumpet would sound tonight, right now, while we're in this house. Are you hearing me? But if we've got to wait on every star to line up and every treaty to be signed and every red heifer to be found and every, hey, you're going to miss the coming of the Lord. I have, I have spent, I, I wish I, I don't know how I would even record, but I've spent hours upon hours upon hours during this uh, last few months in the word of God and study. Um, there are a lot of opinions floating around right now that we have entered the seven years uh, of tribulation that it has begun. And uh, my response to this church family is, I just don't believe that. I do not believe that we are in the beginning of the seven years. And I tell you that if Jesus did not believe and teach that it was possible for you and I to escape these things, then he would not have told us to pray that we be found worthy to escape those things. And I think the common misconception about the coming of the Lord is there are two things, and I'm not going to teach all this tonight, but I, I feel very strongly an introduction that needs to be mentioned. I think that there is a great misconception, um, and it's been a long time since we've taught on this, but there's a, a great misconception that the rapture of the church and the second coming are the same thing. And that is not a fact. The rapture of the church is when he comes on a cloud of glory and we go up to him. The second coming is when we come down with him. Rule and reign with him in the earth for a thousand years. When I was a kid preacher getting my license, I had to sign a piece on my license that said, Do you believe in a literal millennial reign? I didn't know what that was when I was a kid. But I said yes, because that's what the credential committee told me I should do to get my local license. But if I've ever believed in a literal millennial reign, I believe in it now. And I want to tell you this. This is all I'm going to say about this, because I don't have time to chase this trail tonight. I thought about just teaching on this alone. But I can tell you in the literal millennial reign... I hope I'm looking at the back side of horses and not the front side. There's guys that want to debate on whether or not he's come back on a white horse. What's that white really mean? What color white is it? Is it going to be pure white? What kind of white is it? I'm like, hey, chill. I don't care if it's a white horse or a white Cadillac. And I don't care if I'm in the back seat of a car. 
or I'm holding on to the, to the back of some, somebody that's riding in front. I, it don't matter to me. All I'm telling you is I want to be on the top looking down instead of on the bottom looking up. I, I really just want to leave that ball laying on the court. I don't, but I'm going to. And I'm just telling you, you don't want to be here to watch what's going to transpire in that season. There will be some elect that Revelation makes very, very clear that are as chaste virgins that I believe are involved in 144,000 that we could talk about some other time. But I'm just saying to you, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are two completely different events. And you don't want to get the two confused. Because if you think the second coming of Christ is the rapture of the church, then you're going to be waiting on everything that has to happen for the judgment of God to hit the earth. I am living my life tonight. Like before I finish this Bible study, he could come. And that's the way I feel. And if you live any other way than that, it's dangerous. Amen. That's the way I was raised as a kid. I thought, Lord, as soon as I put this cigarette to my mouth, as soon as I tip up this bottle of whiskey, just as sure as it touches my lips, the trumpet's going to sound. It's what kept me from doing it. Come on, somebody. Is there anybody here that was raised with that kind of preaching? Come on, let me see them hands. Just as sure as you let that cuss word drip off your tongue. <laughs> if you wasn't raised on that kind of preaching, you didn't do no late night repenting laying on your pillow. I'd go to bed and, I, oh, God, please let me be ready. Oh, Lord Jesus, whatever I've got to do, let my life be ready. God, don't come if I'm not ready. Anybody ever prayed that? 15 of Joel 1. Alas. For the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Our devotional this week began with a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who is quite the orator. He said, be ready, servant of Christ, for your master comes suddenly. When an ungodly world least expects him. You know there's a reason why I said he's coming like a thief in the night. There's a reason why I said no man knows the day or the hour in which the son of man cometh. But he told us whether it was by direct commandment, by direct spoken word, or by some kind of prolific parabolic form whether it was with ten virgins five wise five foolish whatever it was he said there's going to be a group of people that are not expecting the return of the bridegroom and they're going to come up short now i don't want this to sound negative and i'm going to teach to you for just a minute tonight but I want something to be very, very, very clear. This is not derogatory Pentecostal preaching. This is the teaching of Christ. He said there were ten virgins. Five were ready and five weren't. Anybody here good with math? Huh? It's 50%, Abigail. Half of the people that were supposed to be ready weren't ready. Well, if that's just his teaching in that parable, then we'll know. Oh, well, he also said... There will be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. He said there will be two at the mill, grinding at the mill. One will be taken one will be left. There will be two in the bed. One will be taken one will be left. Somebody do the math for me right now. I don't know how else to say this to you other than to tell you that that tells me at least half of the people that think they're ready to go. If we have ever been sure that we're ready for the coming of the Lord, we had better be sure tonight. 
childhood. When the preacher would preach. And he would preach about the coming of the Lord. And the altars would fill. And men and women would weep. There was a thing when I was a boy that we called white knuckle preaching. And it don't matter how you preach it now, it's hard to get white knucklers. But the thing that troubles me about this is that eternity is as real as it's ever been. Hell is as hot as it's ever been. But the issue is everybody wants to talk about heaven. You don't go to a funeral anywhere anymore. You don't go to a funeral anywhere that somebody's not dancing on streets of gold already. This is going to be very sensitive when I say this. But people that you know have not been born again. Of water and spirit. And then you get on the internet, online, and comment on there. They're in better hands now. They're resting in peace now. Church family, we've got to be careful what we're endorsing. I want to tell you that not everybody's mama is in heaven looking down on us. Not everybody's grandpa is in heaven looking down on us. I know the country music world wants you to believe that now there's holes in the floors of heaven. And tears are pouring down. That's why we're seeing rain tonight. Because somebody's grandmother passed away and they went on to that other shore. We got to get sold out on this thing. Well, pastor, that makes it difficult. That's why we got to have revival. That's why we got to be as powerful as we've ever been. That's why we got to keep preaching. We got to keep reaching. We got to keep singing. We got to keep loving. Somebody help me tonight. We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to patty cake with the devil. Jesus is coming. I'm going to hurry as quickly as I can tonight. I feel such a pressure. I told Bishop on my way out of the office tonight, I said, I'm not completely comfortable with where I'm at tonight on on this lesson. Because I don't really know how, if it's possible at all, to relate to you with 26 letters of an alphabet. How seriously I feel about the days that we're living in. The book of Joel falls naturally into two two different parts. I don't I don't want to be boring to you. But in chapter one, through the beginning of, of chapter two, we read about a terrible locust plague that came over all of Israel. And it says very plainly that this locust plague was judgment from God. And then the people repented. And after they repented, God restored to them the year of the canker worm, the palm worm, the locust. You've read it. Now, by the 28th chapter of the second verse, we read that God at some point in the future, Joel said, is going to pour out his spirit far and wide on all flesh. This is powerful for us because of what we just celebrated this last weekend. Because Peter said, this is that. Which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So, to help you understand, the first half of the book describes how God fought against his people... Because he was jealous to make them honor him alone. And the second half of the book describes how he's going to fight against the nations that refuse to follow him. And so this is a a time that you and I must be very cognizant about this book. I feel like sometimes we're so disconnected from the Old Testament that we don't realize how close we are. If the second chapter of Joel was fulfilled in Acts, the second chapter, what about this day of of destruction? So tonight, I'm going to be very, very brief in my synopsis in this lesson. I'm going to speak to you very quickly about the whole book. It's only three chapters. 
And then we're going to come back and we're going to deal with a couple of things. So let's begin in Joel 1 and 1. The word of the Lord came unto Joel. We don't know a lot about Joel. If you've read any commentaries at all. I spent today in and out of some different commentary things. Reading about Joel. Thinking about Joel. There's not a lot about Joel. And there's a reason. Because the book is not about Joel. The book is about God speaking to a man by the name of Joel. It's believed that he was perhaps a contemporary with the prophet Elisha. So he was a man of a double portion generation that understood the power of God and the word of God. But in verses 2 and 3 it says very plainly that the message that Joel had was to be passed from generation to generation. Then by the fourth verse, the catastrophic locust plague is mentioned. Now, listen, I want, I want you to see this, okay? The palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten, what the locust left, the canker worm ate, and what the canker worm uh, left, the caterpillar hath eaten. Found this very interesting. Every one of these, from the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, every one of these are different type and stage of locust larvae. Now, this sounds boring, but... Stay with me. Basically, what he is saying is that what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten that hops. What the hopping locust has eaten, uh, what it's left, then the destroying locust has eaten. And this is devouring locusts in the land that's Tearing things apart from every stage, from the swarming to the hopping to the destruction. These are devastating. So devastating as a matter of fact that by verse 5, I believe it is, it said there's not even enough grapes for the drunk man to get drunk. See? It's been cut off from your mouth. These locusts have done so much damage that the drunk man can't even get drunk anymore. Pastor, what does this have to do with with anything? Listen, I'm going to tell you something about this passage right here that ought to shake you in your boots. Now, some of you may think I'm stretching this, but you just wait and see. There's going to come a day that the drunk man is going to beg God to be so drunk and intoxicated out of his mind Because he's scared to death. And the Lord said this locust has devoured so many of the crops of the land. That drunk men can't even get drunk anymore. What does this do? It awakens a drunkard. It causes a drunk man to be awake. By verse 7. The fig trees have all splintered. There's There's no fruit. Nothing. The locust... Has devoured everything. By verse number 9. There's not enough grain. For there to be a sacrifice. In the house of the Lord. Think about it. So what's the answer? Well we see it in verse 13. Everybody alright? Hope you're not bored. I love I loved exegetical teaching. But I think sometimes it's hard for us to get our, our minds on. What's the answer? To devastation. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. These are not words we're comfortable with, okay? How, you ministers of the altar? Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholding from the house of your God. He said, This ought to be bothering some ministry. This ought to be bothering somebody that there's not even anything to offer God in the house of God. Well, I don't understand, Pastor, because God sent the locusts. You're right, he did. He sent the locusts to wake up the people of God. And he said, if this don't stir your heart that it's messed up your world, I want you to know this affects me too. It ought to break your heart that nobody has anything to sacrifice in the house of God. He started with people that knew exactly what it cost to bring 
sacrifice to the Lord. And he said, I want you to get up and grieve. Man, I wish I could scream so loud I'd spit this to the fifth row and maybe you'd get it. The language of the prophet is that this ought to grieve people. And notice, he's not saying grieve because your crops have been taken. He said grieve because it affects the kingdom of God. We are coming to a place in the end time church if we're not careful that all of the lament is going to be about what we're doing without. Mm. Chapter 2 begins with another warning that the terrible day of judgment called the day of the Lord is coming. That this locust horde is the dawn of this day of the Lord. So what he say to do, he said, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Somebody say it's near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Then in verses 3 through 11 in chapter 2, Joel describes the locusts again as a raging army with horses and chariots and warriors. In verse 3, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but after them a desolate wilderness. Think about that. Oh God, I wish you could see this. By verse 9, they leap on the city. They run on the walls. They climb into houses. They enter through windows like a thief. In verse 11, he said, they are said to be the army of the Lord. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his host is exceedingly great that executes his word. Then, for a third time, the locust horde is described as the advance of troops, the day of the Lord. And he asked this question right here at the end, but you can't miss it because of the old English language. He said, it's a great and terrible day. Who can abide it? That word means endure. Who can endure it? The great and terrible day of the Lord. Who can endure it? Who can last through this? What do you have to be made of to last through the great and the terrible day of the Lord? Please stay with me tonight, church. I'm going to take you somewhere. Why was God fighting with his people? This is, I, I could have just called this part two from last Wednesday night. Why is God fighting with his people? Joel 2 and 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Think about that. He said you're, rend, you're rending your garments because you're worried about what you've lost. You're focused on material things. And I'm trying to get you to work on your heart. Is this not a picture of where we are today? While windows are being smashed and cars are being burned. And everybody's talking about what they've lost. Like what they've lost is greater than the heart problem in America. I lost my life savings. I lost my business. Well, people are losing their lives. And people are dying and going to hell. Don't you get caught up in this world's narrative. Don't you allow hate to enter into your heart. If you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You are different than the rest of the world. And your hearts, not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God. Somebody say turn. Oh, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return, repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. So even though God has threatened destruction of his own people because of Matthew 3 and 9, he said if he wants to, he can raise up stones from the children of Abraham. He said, I can point at stones and get me somebody. Is this too boring for a Wednesday night? Like he's limited. I, I don't know how to say this tonight without somebody feeling like you're offended. Won't you get this in your heart tonight? He don't need me. 
And he don't need you. It is his good pleasure to bless us. We cannot afford to be rending our garments with everything we go through. When are we going to let him rend our hearts? When are we going to let him work on our spirit? So he holds his judgment again. He said, repent and I'll, I'll do something. If you'll repent, I'll repent. And if you'll rend your hearts, then I'll cease to rend your land. Is that what you read in this story? So what's the, what's the fix, Pastor? In verses 15 through 17, we're still in chapter 2. Joel calls for fasting. The priests pray that God does not make his heritage a byword among the nations. They humble themselves. They appeal to God's jealousy for his chosen people. And then the Lord responded to them in verse 18. Will the Lord be jealous for his land? What's that say? He's going to have pity on his people. He turned his judgment away. Thank God. By verses 19 and 27, it described the stunning restoration which God promises to the land. I'm in a hurry. Verse 25 through 27 show what God was really fighting after with his people, and here it comes. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palm worm, the great army which I sent you. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty, be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wonderfully with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And here it comes, folks. I wish this was bold print across the front of this church. You shall know that I am the Lord your God and none else. Have you ever noticed that the very thing that caused God to lift the heads and allow the Assyrians to get to the children of Israel that caused the plague of locusts in the book of Joel, it's always idolatry. But the problem is because we don't see it in gods of stone and gods of wood and gods of steel and gods of brass and gods of gold, we don't know how to label idolatry. And so what we need is a baptism of repentance and the rending of our hearts so that we may redefine in the 21st century church what is idolatry. Because the track that we're on right now, we're going to legalize everything and say that God understands. We're just going to keep doing everything that we want to do and everything that we used to preach against. It's a new day and age and we've just got to understand that God has changed. Mm. If I could preach to you right now, I would. And I feel like telling somebody tonight, there's a reason why we've always been separate from the world. We don't go where the world goes. We don't do what the world does. We don't live how they live. We don't watch what they watch. We don't, we don't listen to what the world listens to. Why? For some of you, this is a boring Wednesday night Bible study. But I'm asking the Holy Ghost to move on us tonight to rend our hearts. I want you to think about a few things. And I'm not being some old fuddy-duddy up here. I want you to think about things that have brought us pleasure over the past few years. Are you ready for this? American Idol. It's a, ta- it's a talent show. That's a pastor. It's harmless. I'm telling you right now, we have become so desensitized to what idolatry looks like because we don't see it in stone and we don't... 
Have you noticed when idolatry was revealed during the Exodus, what Moses did? He took that idol, that, that, that golden idol, that calf that was made, and he ground it up and had it go into, into the people. He had them drink it up. And what he was saying to them is this is going inside because idolatry is an inside problem. This is something that's got to be dealt with. There's something on the inner man. Moses was gone for 40 days and idolatry manifested. What in the world are we going to do in the end time church if we've got to go longer than 53 days before we meet again? I'm trying to help somebody on Wednesday night. We don't think it's ever going to happen to us. I'm going to be bold as a lion right here, church, and I'm going to help somebody. And I hope that this echoes across this, the waves tonight of the Internet, too. And I want to tell you, I don't care if you're a part of this church or not. If you're a part of the body of Christ, you need to hear this tonight. And it needs to be very clear when I tell you this. I'm not trying to pastor anybody that's not in this church, but it needs to be said. If all we did for two or three months of quarantine was sit in front of a stupid television and feed our flesh and feed all of the things of our minds and all all of our fantasies and all the idolatry in our world. We have missed the mark. We live our lives being entertained by the gods of this world. All the concerts, all the singers, all the football players, all the basketball players, every bit of that got stripped away from us. And that was a good excuse for us because we've got a generation of children that don't know what idolatry is. They don't have a Bible in their room, but they sure got posters on their wall of football players. They couldn't name you the 11 apostles if you gave them a $100 bill. But they could start uh, name you the starting 11 of the Indianapolis Colts. And all of that was stripped away from us. I haven't had to contend one Sunday with the NFL. They were interviewing a politician the other day, asking what he couldn't wait for for the quarantine to be over. He said, I'm ready for real sports to come back. I'm tired of watching games that have already been won and lost. Yeah, you and I have more to lose. What's this about, Pastor? It's tonight about standards. You know what? As long as they're just standards of the church, we've missed it anyway. I don't do what I do because it's what my church teaches. Our kids had better have a better answer than that. When they're asked by their friends, why do you dress like that? Why don't you go to movies with us? These are not standards of the church. It's the Spirit of God rending our hearts and saying there's some idols in your life that you've got to get rid of if you're going to be ready for that terrible day. I'm asking you to lift your hands right now. Can I help you tonight, church? Can I help somebody? I spent time on the phone today as I began this lesson tonight. I was going to share this with you. I spent time on the phone today with a man of God in another country that was trying to dig out some things for a Bible study tonight on the end time. As we began to talk, he said, Brother St. Clair, he said, I don't understand 
why people don't preach this. And I said to him, I said, brother, because people preach what they've heard, not what they know. They preach what they can download. They preach what they can listen to. They preach what they can watch on video. You listen to pastor when I tell you tonight. This is not a good day and time for copy-paste preachers. Somebody better get a burden in their soul. We need apostolic revival. That before we preach the carpet where we laid our faces soaking wet. I told him, I said, I'm going to tell you what convicts me, brother. I said, when a young man is chosen in his life and he decides that he's going to be a rabbi in the Jewish faith, he stops everything that he's doing. And as a young man, Brother Jordan, he goes every day for 13 hours a day and studies scripture. Think about it. 13 hours a day. I don't know how many of you have your device set up to do this. At the end of the week, you should be getting the thing that says, you've been on your phone this much this week. Anybody ever get those? I work every single week to be sure that mine says yours was down a percentage this week. Because when we get done with all the time that we've wasted, I want you to think about how you feel when you scroll through Facebook and you disagree with all the foolishness that people's posting. Somebody got on there this week saying, if you don't have the guts to post about what's going on in our society, then you don't love people. So I want to tell you folks something. I loved everybody before I had a Facebook account. And you're not a hero because you can get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and say something about you. But I don't care what you type online. I want to see you with your arms around them. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm being mean tonight, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm up to here. I'm up to here with all these preachers virtue signaling. About people of different races. And they won't even walk across the street. And shake hands with somebody of a different color. I don't care what your Facebook says. I want to know what your heart says. told a group that I was with today and I won't tell you who it was because I don't want to incriminate anybody but I'd had all I, I could take and I just stood up and I said by this you all men know that you're my disciples by what you post online we're fools if we think we're showing brotherly love just because we got the guts to put a little hashtag online if I can't show you to your face that I love you I don't have any business saying anything on the internet. And I'm sorry for all you lame brain lamos that think when you get to heaven, there's going to be segregated sections for different races of people. We're all going to sit down in the city where the lamb is alive and we're going to sit down at the table for the marriage supper of the lamb. You hear what I'm telling you? There's going to be German people that sit down at the table with us. And they see their Jewish Messiah. But their great-grandfather was in Hitler's army. There's going to be white people that are going to sit down with brothers and sisters of different colored skin. That maybe their grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. But they got smart enough to get redeemed by the blood. 
I don't care who your grandpa hated. Get saved and get the Holy Ghost. I'm sorry if you think tonight that I'm jumping off in things that I got no business jumping off in. But I'm going to tell you right now that when it creates more division in the church than it helps in the world, we've missed it by a mile. Jesus is getting ready to come and some of us are biting into that foolish apple. There's nobody in the world that said they don't believe racism doesn't exist. We all know it exists, but it better not exist in this church. You need the Holy Ghost. seated God we need you the ultimate aim of God in the plague of locusts against the people was to secure their undivided allegiance to him and him alone and that's why I'm preaching what I'm preaching to you. Because it gets our minds off of allegiance to Him. And we start dabbling in things that are doing nothing but distracting us. Folks, all I'm asking you to do is put your thinking cap on right now. If you're a news person, I want you to think about it. In the last four or five days that all this stuff's going on around the world... What's the last thing you heard about COVID? Because when narratives start losing steam, the enemy starts working on another narrative. Oh, God. Am, am I out left field tonight? Why is it that four weeks ago, People that were crying out against the government wanted to have church and wanted to open up their businesses. We're going to affect millions of people because they got out there and protested. But this week, no, no, no. Nobody's getting infected. Oh, I know right now, as soon as these captions are formulated on YouTube and Facebook tonight, I'm in trouble. The narrative isn't working anymore. It's only contagious when you come to church. It's not contagious when you're spreading hate against people. If we got to, we'll take it down. I don't give a rip. I'm tired of the pressure of the internet trying to make the church cave. If it's taking our allegiance off of God, how did he say that all men would know you were his disciples? Do you have love one for another? You know what I've seen in the foolishness of all these buildings being crashed and all that stuff happening? You know what I've seen in the midst of hate? You know what I've seen? I've seen some good people. That have walked up in the middle of this thing. Of every race. I've seen blacks and whites and Hispanics. and just Of all races. Walking arm in arm with people. Saying violence is not the answer. Loving one another is the answer. Bishop I'm sorry if this kind of preaching makes people uncomfortable. Maybe they're in the wrong church. But we're going to have revival. And not everybody that comes in this church is going to look just like me. And they're not going to look just like you. 
And they're not going to smell like me and they're not going to smell like you. I'm hurrying. Oh, God. I wish y'all would feel what I feel on me right now. I don't want to be fake. Why aren't you speaking out? I am. But you know how many other things I disagree with in this earth and I don't post them on Facebook? I don't plan on casting my pearl before swine. You're dismissed. Let me get back on track and I'll be done in just a minute. The first half of Joel's book said that the day the Lord was near. But then God had a change of heart. And the final judgment did not fall. So what happened to the final judgment? Because if you read the first chapter... It said that the day of the Lord is at hand, or another way of saying that in verse 15, our verse for this week, and this is where I'm trying to close tonight. It said the day of the Lord is near, at hand. It's close. So, evidently near is not the sense that it had to happen soon, but actually that it was about to happen. You understand what I'm saying? When it said that it's at hand, the Lord was saying, this is not something I'm planning on in the near future. This, I'm telling you, it's here. So what happened to the judgment of God? He put off his judgment for a season. And in the second half of the book, he stops talking about judgment long enough to say, I'm going to pour my spirit out. On all flesh. Let me line this up for you in a chronological order. The day of the judgment of the Lord was pending in the book of Joel. But the Lord said, What I'm going to do is give the people of the earth a chance to live filled with the Spirit. And see if people can tell the difference in folks once they've been filled with the Spirit. And the idolatry of people before my Spirit came. This is a long fast forward version. But get the picture. Judgment of the Lord is at hand. What are we going to do? Well, if you'll repent, I'll withhold it. Okay, so they repent. He withholds it. Now what's he going to do? I'm going to pour my Spirit out. All this is saying to me. Is that the Spirit of God working in our lives, Acts 2, this is that. The Spirit of God working in our lives ought to make a difference in idolatry. But I have fear tonight. Uh, church, I want you to hear this preacher when I tell you. History is replete. You can read it over and over again. Judgment of the Lord comes. Captivity comes. People repent. The day of the Lord is pushed off. How many people do you think in the bubonic plague thought surely this was it? How many people in the black plague do you think thought this is it? Okay, here's the issue. This again verifies what I believe that the reason why we're going to have a, a, a pre-trib rapture of the church is because a praying church is the thing that is withheld the day. A praying church is the thing that's held the judgment of God. Let me break this down to you in closing tonight. 
John said the spirit of Antichrist was in the earth and now worketh. But the Antichrist, the man of sin, has not yet been revealed. Why? Because as long as there is the power of a praying church, the Antichrist can't work in the earth. And here comes the but, the and, the however, the conjunction. Unless the church becomes so much like him the Antichrist because we have the spirit of Antichrist working in us that the Lord finally says, okay, the spirit of Antichrist is one. Now I'm going to take the elect. Is that even scriptural, pastor? It is. He says that if he doesn't shorten the days of his coming, Sister Danny, the very elect, So I end where I started tonight early on. Five wise, five foolish, five taken, five left. Two grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. You think we're going to be surprised at the rapture of the church? By how many churches have full pews on Sunday, but half of those people are left on rapture day? I don't know how y'all feel right now, but I can't hardly contain my emotions. I don't ever preach like this. I wish you could see my brain. It looks like the little mouse running around on the wheel. I don't ever preach like this, but what I don't just sing over and over in my mind, Brother Horner. Where will you be a million years from now? Will you be happy? Will you be singing while ages roll throughout eternity? I ask this question Where will you be? How many more times are we going to be able to repent and the Lord withhold his judgment? How long will the cycle continue before he finally says enough is enough? I don't know how you feel about it, but I kind of feel like if you listen close enough, you can hear heaven's orchestra warming up. I feel like if you listen close enough. <laughs> you can hear the angel putting his mouth to the shofar. I know this sounds like an oversimplified process tonight, but I want it to be very, very clear to those gathered here and those that will see this on webcast. There's no such thing as halfway saved. And for those that are almost saved, they're always lost. And if you almost make it to heaven, you've certainly made it to hell. And so you got one or two options. That's to be saved or be lost. How long will it take us after a pandemic to just get back to normal? Get back to the grind and just back to life as usual. And if this has not been enough to move us, the swarm of locusts caused repentance and it caused God's heart to turn. So maybe COVID-19 has caused men to repent and the hand of God to turn for a while. 
But what's going to take for us to get idolatry out of our hearts? Hatred out of our hearts. Bitterness out of our hearts. Racism out of our hearts. Darkness out of our hearts.